Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Kyle Cook. Hi Kyle. Hey there, I'm super stoked to be in dialogue again and yeah, I'm excited about where this conversation might go. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not going to be a repeat of the other one, which was private because you have something different in store. So yeah, what is an idea that's been helping you live well that we can kind of explore today? Yeah, an, an idea slash a question that I'm holding is how can I reliably and systematically shift my belief systems in a way that helps me better belong to myself and the world and helps me tap into the potential I logically know to be true, but maybe mm. I, I, I haven't experienced yet. Yeah, yeah. So would, would it be fair to uh, presume that this comes as kind of a a backlash or a wish to see something different because our society is relatively fragmented? Like, does it come from that place? Yeah, it's stemming from my own journey of, you know, once upon a time, I was an IT software technician, um, kind of living and working in the office and in the modern world. And as I deepened my connection to nature, I didn't even... I, I, retrospectively realized that there was a deep sense of disconnection that I had a lot of superficial relationships and I didn't really have a lot of like deep meaning in my life and as I connected to nature I started to find those things and I found deeper connection to myself but in a lot of ways it disconnected me further from Um, family and society and now I feel like I want to I want to bridge those worlds that also maintains my integrity yeah that is fascinating how would you describe the beginning of the process of getting yourself out from the neon lights and uh, to a place under the the beautiful sun that we have like so to speak how uh, what was the the Uh, what was the prompt there and how did you go about it like how did you first explore it yeah the moment I can I just I re- I realize or I can see this moment like very vividly I was I was like feeling disconnected in IT and noticing that all of my skills were based around technology electronics and the internet and that if you took those things away I wasn't that useful like I was like fun and funny and I could hang out but I didn't have like skills and I, I did mm. a three-day wilderness um, survival nature connection course and in that experience I made fire and I I like took a couple sticks rubbed them together blew it into flames and I was like whoa I just made <laughs> like the greatest thing possible to With just like me like I'm an infinite well of untapped potential that I didn't really need anything other than the materials that were around me to create this you know epic life-changing force and that per- propelled me on this quest of like what am I capable 
of as a human in this world. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's fantastic. And, you know, to me, I don't know if it occurred to you in real time, and I don't know if it occurred to me in real time when I did similar things, but it also, the fact that you're doing something which humans, you know, over a million years ago already figured out how to do consistently, consistently, and yet today it's kind of a lost art to just start a fire with two sticks or a flint or something like that. You know, what else have we lost along the way, right? It makes you feel like, oh, there needs to be, you know, there's definitely progress and that's good, but what else has fallen by the wayside that maybe mm. we should pick up? And I'm not just talking about technologies that have to do with, you know, physical processes, but, you know, culturally too, right? What did we lose along the way, potentially? Um yeah, so that's kind of what what comes to my mind, and I, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you in that place that you've gone to and really liked. Um, is was there also a, a breakthrough for you emotionally, like in terms of this more belonging stuff, where it's just more more connectivity with something? Yeah, for sure. I, I like to look at it through the realm of relationships and we're always in relationship mm. with something. Like I have a relationship with my phone, I have a relationship with my mother, I have a relationship with you um, in the world around me. And it's uh, just really been like, how am I Tending to these relationships, what relationships am I relying on? What relationships am I lacking? And what relationships do I ultimately want to cultivate? And, you know, like you said, we lost a lot along the way. And we've really lost our relationship to the natural world. And our relationship with technology has become one of dependence, right? That like mm. when technology does not work like that. And that was one of my realizations in it is like, if the power was out, like I was useless. Like if I didn't have a phone right. or internet connection, like my skill level, like, doo -doo 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 like went way down and you know, we, we've come so far in all of these ways in a way that we're dependent and reliant on things that are more and more outside of the self, right? And mm. both in my movement journey, my nature connection practice journey, um, and just my character cultivation is I've been move, I've been on a journey like towards the self. And cultivating mm. like, that relationship, like what, right? Like being alone and like being in the uncertainty and having a depth of character is something like nobody can take away from me. And ultimately that is the most important thing to me right now is cultivating that. But in some ways that it, disrupts my connection with other people and people who don't like my family. Like I love my family and they've done so much to 
make me who I am. And I see this struggle in this disconnect as I connect with myself, I find it harder to mm. connect with them in some ways. Um, and that's, yeah, that's been my current struggle. And like, I've been wrestling with that um, as of late. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Like at some point in my life, I was living in a homestead in Georgia and was just out there and I had an experience with a substance called LSA, which is found in uh, Argyrea nervosa. Um, it's uh, Hawaiian baby wood rose is the common name. And it just took me on this trip where I found, you know, a lot of high level concepts that were very true in a sense. And it was like ego death and all these things. But Actually, toward the end, I felt like I could just stop my own heartbeat or my lungs and not take in or let out any more air. Uh, but then it was the connections with the people that were like, oh, I miss them. I want these connection, connections with the people. So it's really interesting how I think there is a kind of trajectory that's also very common in coming of age books, you know, like Siddhartha or... Um, yeah, either basically Herman Hesse is like the king of this genre. Um, but this trajectory of, you know, going to find yourself and then finding the way to come back home and be accepted and be accepting and be more successful at navigating because it really takes a lot of like gentle steps towards in a way it's, it's a dance, right? With other people, this relationship and, um, yeah, I find that it's definitely a, a theme for anybody who's kind of doing soul searching is to eventually mm. try and establish the connection with with other people. So in terms of this um, growing of yourself, do, do you have any kind of assumption of how it works, like why this close interaction with nature um, bring about this kind of growth? Uh, that you can't, I mean, w what is different about the organic molecules that you can't find in cables and so on? Yeah, it's been a, a really interesting question that I've been asking for about a decade now. Is like, so I went to this, so I was IT, I went to a nine-month school that I was deeply immersed in the skills of nature connection and bird language and um, foraging and primitive skills and all these type of things. And after that experience, I was like, I was deeply transformed. And I was like a little bit confused as to what happened to me. I'm like, I'm just playing in the woods. And all of a sudden I'm like very introspective and emotional and I have all these, you know, intuitive feelings and inklings and adventures and stories. Mm. And then I was like, okay, like that was cool. I'm not sure what happened. And then I went into wilderness therapy and I was a wilderness therapy guide for at-risk youth for a year. And again, I would see this reliable transformation that by spending time in the wilderness, in nature, that it, it's like, it's like the boredom that allows the thoughts and the emotions to like come up. Right. And so I, I would see this profound transformation in all of these um, young boys. 
And I'm like, okay, there's something here. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm very curious. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going back to the wilderness awareness school uh, where I worked for, yeah, a little over six years. And I got to interview all of the students before their nine month journey. I got to co-facilitate and watch them do their thing. And then I got to watch them come out the other side and, and kind of do a little post interview. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm, I'm still not sure what happened in that, but then um, through podcasts and um, part, you know, ex experiential knowledge throughout that time, I started to piece together these things, right? There's, there's a, a profound sense of health and vitality and resource that is given to you when you spend time in nature. And so if we look at it like from the scientific realm, like spending time outside balances your circadian rhythm, all of your hormone production, your hunger, your sleep cycles, that alone is profound and is likely giving you um, a tremendous bank of resources and then you're less stressed so you have time to process these things that are happening and in our modern world we just see how quickly information and perspective change and things are just coming at us and it, we don't have time to process it i think we're just like taking things on that are that are very much outside of ourselves. And we still have so much inside of ourselves that we need to process. And so it's like, I, again, I'm not sure what it is. It's like a combination of like time and timelessness and boredom. It's a combination of, of awe and beauty and adventure that allows this aliveness to emerge out of us. And then there's like a realization of this like childlike curiosity that becomes accepted. And that might be one of the most mm. profound things because like I facilitate play. I just facilitated a little experience um, a couple days ago. And all we did was play games and there were like yoga instructors and contact improv instructors and dance and like movement people who have not moved and played in this curiosity <laughs> that I think um, comes natural when you're out in nature. And yeah, so just to kind of bring that all together. So when you're in nature, there's, there's this timelessness that allows things to come up and out, there is a, a sense of awe and reverence and connectedness to the world um, that you get to see your impact, right? And I think that's mm -hmm. part of belonging in the world is, is people think they're insignificant and that they, they don't have impact. And so they feel like they don't belong. And then... Mm. But when you're in nature, you see that like the, the feedback loop is very tight. 
that like you broke that branch, you harvested mm. that plant, you had to get that water. You're in these, um, and you're seeing all of the impacts of that. Whereas like if you cut somebody off in traffic, like you have no idea how that impacts that person throughout their day. So mm -hmm. it's easy um, to either create a story around it or to completely dismiss it. And yeah, so there's something in nature. Yeah. That I'm still like holding that question. Like, I don't know if it's all those things together, the multiplicity <laughs> or if any one of those things is more impactful than the other. No. Yeah. That's, that's a beautiful, that's a, a beautiful um, answer because it, it's so comprehensive. And I think that it's absolutely true that it touches on all these um, aspects and, you know, it brings me to my mind a uh, conversation I had on this podcast with Stephanie Lepp, and she's uh, dealing a lot with truth, and she brought up the interesting idea that, you know, she actually gave an example from nature about a different way to perceive truth than what we usually do, and we like the quantifiable metrics to kind of hold them one against one another and compare and arrive at math equations and so on. Uh, but she gave the um, the corn, bean, and squash example where, you know, obviously uh, Native American tribes have been growing this uh, so-called holy trinity of theirs and subsisting off it. And it turns out that, you know, this really gives you pretty much all the nutrients you need. And she pointed out that it's probably not a coincidence that they also do well growing with one another in, in, um, in close vicinity to one another. And it's, it's this mode of kind of truth seeking that we can actually apply nature, I think, and understand that whatever is happening, and it's probably happening at the subconscious level because we can't per se feel hormones going through our blood. Of course, we, recognize some of the effects, but some of the effects are, are, are too small to kind of uh, be registered in, in consciousness in the sense that it goes all the way to this centralized nervous system that's mostly in our brain and appears in consciousness, right? But there are so many minute signals that are just like um, electric in nature, like us just going near plants or animals or so on. And you know, vitamin D is being produced as we walk under the sun and so on. But the fact that we can get out there and there's just more harmony to be perceived, in a sense, that's all we need to understand in order to understand that this is good for us. You know, we don't necessarily need to break it down and be reductionistic about it to find the exact things. Like, we should be happy with the high level understanding that, Hey, there's a, a lot of beauty out here. So it's probably pretty good to spend as much time here as possible. And it is amazing to think how far removed we are from it when we encase ourselves in concrete walls and, and so on. Yeah. We're like, we're so far removed that the benefits of nature have been exponentiated right it's like um mm. you know again like 
I, I like to look at, I like to test things through three different lenses. So I like to look at it from like an evolutionary like perspective, a scientific perspective, and then my own participatory experience of that, right? So one example mm. um, connected to what you said is when people go camping, they generally feel better. They're more relaxed. They're calmer. They have a, a little bit more like energy and vitality um, in them. And then we can look at the scientific lens and we can see that three days camping increases your natural killer cell count by like somewhere around like 70%, right? And then there's a half-life of that that exists for two weeks after. And then if we mm. then think about it through an evolutionary lens, like inside wasn't really a thing. Right. Like even mm. like the San Bushmen yeah. who are living in Kenya, like they have these little like grass hut shelters, like they still sleep outside unless the weather is like really terrible. Right. And um, one of my teachers, John Young, he would he goes down there to study with them pretty frequently and they like will not go into buildings and they will not ride inside the cab of the car. And when they ask them why, oh. they're like, we see what happens to the people when they go inside. Oh. Right? And wow. it's like, you know, if, like probably you, like I experience this, like if I find myself indoors for an extended period of time, like I feel uh -huh. the anxiety. I feel the like. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, there's all these. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, well, it's just a kind of a tangent to go off on, but I recently watched a video about the, uh, about the Sentinel Island. So you know about this island in, uh, near the Andaman Islands? No. It was, um, an American, an American missionary who went there in 2018, I think, and was killed by the local tribe. But basically it's an island. Uh, off the, the coast of the, the big island in the Andaman Islands, which are in Indian territory. And it's an island that's about 50 kilometers. It's actually very close. Um, and this island is contacted in a sense, but it's also uncontacted because everybody who shows up on the island simply gets killed. And the people there... Uh, we know what they look like. They are, they have even been approached by this one, uh, anthropologist who I think throughout the seventies and eighties try to, uh, sail around, give them, just shower them with gifts so that they would agree to make contact. And he did. And actually they exchanged coconuts. So they did come in contact and these people were fine. Uh, but once he retired, they went back to being, um, basically, uh, basically wild, and you can see on them that they're part of the native population, much like the aboriginals of um, Australia. So they, they've been there for like 30,000 years or something like that. We don't know what language they speak. Nobody knows how to communicate with them. And they know just one thing. We want nothing to do with you outsiders, and they will fiercely defend mm. their 
um, their thing on the island. And the Indian government now does not allow anybody to go. And this young American, uh, Christian American who went there, um, he hung out like on the beaches or something like that, but was eventually killed by them. So this would be a more extreme example. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, but you have to have some sort of respect for them that at least it's, it's, you know, killing people isn't nice, but they know for themselves, for some reason, they know it's not going to end well. And, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's probably because they've had encounters in the past and it's probably part of their lore now that, you know, these <laughs> outsiders are no good. Um, but it, it's really interesting that they know what they want and they kind of defend it. So, um, also thinking about Yuval Noah Harari, it's funny that I don't say his name in Hebrew, Yuval Noah Harari, um, and his kind of narrative of self-domestication. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you've had any thoughts about this. It's like, why is it that we did end up in this sterilized space that doesn't nourish us as well as we should be? Yeah, so I do actually have a hypothesis around this. Um, is in nature, in a general sense, if we look at the birds and the mammals and life as a whole, we find that the dominant orientation is towards conservation of energy, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I was tracking a coyote the other day, and if you if you follow a coyote, like they are very business oriented and anything that's outside of their like direct travel route is very intentional. Like this coyote was traveling, it came to the edge mm -hmm. to look, and then it was back on its path. It came to mark its territory back on the path. Now, if you track a domestic dog, it is so windy and weavy. Right. And it is mm. just expending energy in kind of a ridiculous way. And in the, so the, the big difference between those is the coyote doesn't know where its next meal is going to come from. And it's mostly spending all of its energy trying to get energy. Same with the birds, um, same with much of life. And at one point, humans were very much in the same subsistence style living where you're like, conservation of energy is just like built into you like on a when i'm on my survival trips like i'm not doing kettlebell workouts i'm like not doing right. you know a, a hundred push-ups and squats i'm not wasting or i'm not expending energy um yeah in a fashion that doesn't that like i just don't have the energy to expend all right, so conservation is this dominant orientation, and and that's and that's technology, and that's why we, you know, even like you know, hunter gatherers, they have their spots, right, where they go to get mm. specific foods, and then they cultivate and tend those spots so that they're more productive because it's a more reliable source of food, and that's one of the hypotheses around agriculture. Is that yeah? It's um. There's a big energy expenditure. There's kind of a lack of variety in their diet, but it's more reliable than it is going out and hopefully finding food. 
And so as we've like grown on this trend of creating reliable sources of energy, right? Like building a shelter mm -hmm. in every new location, um, it takes time, it takes energy. Then you have to, you know, like when you, when you go camping or when you're on like a survival trip, you spend all of your time, like making camp, finding food, getting water and harvesting wood. And then your extra time is like leisure time. Well, when mm -hmm. you have a house, right. And you have a car and you have a fridge full of food and you have a grocery store, um, we've now created this abundance of energy, but we're still stuck in this conservation of energy kind of like mindset. And mm. I, I really believe we're kind of on this like bell curve of a shift, like a paradigm shift. I believe in like, I have a fridge full of food. So I prioritize like cold water training because I have a warm house to come back to. I can go and work out because I have access to nutrients that are going to allow me to recover. I really like in this bell curve of the early adopters, like all the people who are here, they're still expending ridiculous amounts of energy because of all the systems of, of, energy conservation and resource management that we have. But then there's a large mm -hmm. part of society that are like, they're just conserving mass amounts of energy. And you can see that um, basically highlighted in like fat, right? Like in the obesity epidemic, right. like we're, we're like, we have energy conservation um, sedentary yeah. Yeah, priority. And then we, layer that on and now like like uh katie bowman um has a really good book called movement matters and it's like we're continually outsourcing movement like no longer do i even stick my key in the car i push a button i unlock it with the button you know yeah. my coffee grinds for me i have auto like everything's auto 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 and if we don't have outlets to expend that energy then we are now experiencing all the detriments of sedentism because we have, we evolved and adapted to a highly to a movement rich world and that like our biology like you right your immune system your lymphatic system requires movement to operate like your calf muscles require walking to pump blood throughout the body so we're adapted for a world that we don't live in. And we're, I think we're still living in that mindset. Um, yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's really interesting. Like the, and it's, it's so fascinating. You know, I think it's pretty obvious that we're pretty much, I think it's fair to say the only species that's kind of undergone this process of, you know, it's just like a food chain. And then it's like, Oh, I can, hop to the side of it and now just be observing and not participating in the food chain. And obviously it has this upside attached with it. It's like, you're not going to get eaten. Uh, but um, yeah, I think you're right. It's only now that we're kind of looking at it and being like, Oh, there, there's um, in, in some ways we're not uh, participants in this. And part of living well is being a participant is taking part in this complex ecosystem that that we are 
part of eventually. And I think that is kind of, um, you might suffer estrangement if you, if you remain in this place. And I, I do hope that, as you say, it's now maybe it's a small movement of people spearheading this movement to go into a place of, you know, reintegrating ourselves, uh, within nature. There's also an interesting aspect of, you know, which I've been considering lately of the fact that I think in a lot of respects, humans are domesticated animals, which, uh, has a real meaning because we know it about domesticated animals. There was a famous, a rather famous experiment of, uh, Russian uh, scientists who tried to domesticate, uh, gray foxes because he wanted to farm them for their wool, uh, for their fur, basically for scarves and so on. And he noticed that within, you know, three or four generations, something super early on, they already started to have features which are, uh, common among domesticated animals. So that's floppy ears, um, irregular, uh, coloring patterns. On, on their bodies, like these white spots and stuff. And we know these from dogs and cats and horses, like completely unrelated animals, right? Once you domesticate them, they share, um, features. And I think for a large part, humans have done it to themselves. And another aspect of domestication is really retaining, um, retaining personality, like a juvenile personality, basically remaining juvenile. Even as you go into adulthood in terms of number of years you lived. And I, I keep thinking about that and about what this can tell us about humans, because I see it kind of appearing in different aspects of our lives. I think mostly from the perspective of actually feeling that you have control over your life rather than, um, keeping to look up for instruction or leadership from, uh, from other people when you probably should have been on your own by now. Yeah. Right. You are a zoo animal. You have created your very <laughs> own like extravagant cage. Right. And if you, and if you study wolves in captivity and you were to think that that's how wolves are and live in the wild, you would be very wrong. <laughs> right. Mm. And, yeah. and that's also true in humans. It's really highlighted by Katie Bowman's work. Like we're studying domesticated humans and we are like thinking that this is how we are. And then we go and study undomesticated humans and we find that they're like very different. They don't have a lot of these uh, diseases of sedentism um, or we create these like weird metrics. So if we study domesticated humans, we look at their dorsiflexion, their, the shin angle of their foot mm -hmm. relative to their shin. And we would say that like, like 15 degrees is really good mobility. Right. If you were to go to like a PT mm -hmm. or something, it'd be like 15 to 20 degrees. Like you have really good mobility. And then when we go look at some of these undomesticated tribes, we find that they naturally, everybody in the tribe has a 45 degree shin angle. Right. 
And mm-hmm. again, there's like so many examples of this from, from disease to physicality and that we've, we've put ourselves in this zoo environment and, and if we could recognize that in the positive way, like, right. It's like, if you have a dog, you make sure that your dog goes outside and gets exercise, right? You make mm-hmm. sure your dog has like food and water. Like you should do that for yourself also. <laughs> you should go outside <laughs> and get exercise. Um, and so, yeah, as we found ourselves domesticated and there's this rewilding movement, we can use these technologies and these things to better design our lives from barefoot shoes to saunas to cold plunges to um, better water sources, right? There's all these benefits of domestication um, that make our lives really easy. But now that we've recognized the problems with it, like why not like create a really high quality zoo if we're going to live in it? Yeah. Yeah. If there's, uh, yeah, I think that would be the best philosophical advice to any listeners right now it would be get barefoot shoes. I, I definitely uh, would sign on that. It's just like, you know, what, once, once these things, and this is just an example, but once these things are kind of brought to your doorstep and the, the, the evidence is there and it's almost kind of funny because it's like, of course, of course, it's better for us. Like, why would we, well, you know, and each time I'm trying to squat and my heels can't touch the ground. And I'm like, just frustrated that they haven't done it earlier. And, um, it's, it's like that with a lot of things. It's, um, it's kind of, it ties back to what I was saying earlier that, you know, think about how we evolve the kind of environment we, uh, we evolved in and it just, makes sense that we would be um fitting better there at 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 the same time it's and here's you know eventually we're going to come around to this uh conflict or friction that we were mentioning how do you bring those two worlds together obviously we don't want to give up our privilege of not being eaten i'm I'm, i don't think that anybody would wish it for themselves to uh once more run away from lions or, or mountain lions or whatever. Um, so it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, for people working in it, it's probably necessary to, to be, um, not in nature for long periods of time. So if we, um, yeah, started to think about this, about bringing the two together, like what are some of the thoughts that you've already had the chance to, to think about that and, kind of approaching the people who are maybe not at the spearhead of this, but communicating it to them. Yeah. And I think that's really where science comes into play. Like we're so data driven um, and we can look at the data and we can realize the many benefits. um, So we can use that as a catalyst um, to get the minimum effective dose. I really love the work of a- Andrew Huberman, um, professor of neurobiology at Stanford. And, you know, like 
Okay, like I know that cold plunging has all of these amazing benefits, right? But maybe you're like, how cold, how long? Well, we can start to use science to answer those questions. Like, cool, like you only need to do it 11 minutes a week. Like, oh, wow, all of a sudden that becomes attainable, right? So we can use science to kind of create measurable and attainable goal and give us validation. And so the way that um, I've really implemented that is, is uh, John Vervecki has actually given me really good language for what I've been doing that both transformed me and transformed, you know, these thousands of other people that have gone through these programs that continues to transform people in the experiences that I facilitate. And it, it's the idea of an ecology of practices, that there is no one thing that is like, the golden bullet that, you know, that is going to like, oh, like, you know, if you just do this, you're going to be happier, healthier, yeah. um, you know, and oh, I don't know if I lost you, but the, no, I, I, I'm, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> um, the ecology of practices that I participate in are called the core routines of nature connection. And these come about from the work of John Young trying to answer the question, how do place-based cultures learn and thrive if they don't have school, right? We really prioritize like education, like mm -hmm. if you're not educated, like you're not going to be able to get a job. If you're not going to be able to get a job, you're not going to be able to do these things. But what about the very long existence of humans without school. Well, they haven't, they had a college right. of practices that helped to teach them both about place themselves and the relationship about their role in that place. And mm. much like an ecology, right? You have trees that, are connected to fungal systems and the fungal systems allow the trees and plants to get nutrients. You have animals that are dying and defecating on the earth and then you have water cycles. You have all of these inputs that are both additives, extractives and um, cyclical um, and keep everything in check. So we wanna have an ecology of practices that do that as well. Right. It's like some people who really focus on meditation and spiritual side of things, they can get to this place of like spiritual bypass where everything is just love and light and I'm going to meditate and it's just going to be okay and I can live off of air mm -hmm. and water. And you're like, cool, maybe <laughs> in a modern context that works. But like you were speaking to, to the truth aspect is when we take these things into nature, we find the truth mm -hmm. of the matter, right? Like certain diets mm. will simply not work in certain environments, right? Right. Like if you live in the Arctic, it will be really hard for you to be vegan because there are very little plants. And as you move right. closer to the equator, right, it, it's easier to have more diverse diets. So 
with these ecology of practices, they stem from place-based cultures all over the world that they all have these common practices. And those practices keep each other in check. So like if I, meditation helps me focus, right? It helps me understand myself. And having a parkour practice is a physical practice of overcoming obstacles and moving through my environment. Well, now my meditation practice helps give me focus when I go to do a really big jump, right? And by doing mm -hmm. that jump and having focus, I'm able to break through these layers of fear and story and cultivate courage. And when I cultivate courage through parkour, I then might realize that I have the ability to be courageous in my work and maybe ask for a raise, maybe ask somebody out on a date, maybe insert my opinion into mm -hmm. a conversation where I might feel lesser. And so all of these practices should interpenetrate and interafford each other in a way that continues to grow and cultivate your character and your connection um, as a part of the ecology. So some of those practice, is there anything or do you want me to get into some of these practices? No, yeah, I, I would love to. I would just say, yeah, this is, this is beautiful. I think the idea that, you know, you can, everything is in the service of something else. It's not, it's not disjunct or, you know, disconnected from, from but everything serves a purpose. And in most cases there is, it's both, it's also stacked as Katie Bowman would say, like, you're achieving two things at one time, and one of these is going to be transferable into another domain uh, very soon after. I, I really appreciate that thinking in, in her and in you as well. And it's, um, yeah, obviously I think that, you know, we, we really think in such reduced terms in today's society where we just don't pay attention to, uh, we or we pay attention to, very few things, you know, our life really revolves around basically like work, family status, or, you know, there's like very, and yeah, we, 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 we barely ever kind of get out of our comfort zone and try different things. And as you say, we're not really playful. So whatever kind of mm -hmm. card we've been playing for a while, that's been giving us the results and getting food in our fridge, uh, is just, um, being played more and more, but, um, yeah, it makes, it makes total sense to me. So yeah, if, if you'd like to, um, to share some concrete examples of practices, I would love that. Yeah. So I'll kind of, I'll give a little bit of a list and, and then I'll, I'll give some ideas on how those, those can be connected for people. Um, so yeah, one of the main practices, if, if, if I had to just give one, um, but this is the base of the practices, is finding yourself a sit spot. And a sit spot is exactly that. It is a spot outside in nature that you go and sit and simply observe and notice, you know, only the things that you can notice, notice what's happening in the world. And from that foundation, we can build up all these other practices that might happen separately. So, for example, 
Um, if I want to work on my tracking ability, wildlife tracking, the ability to interpret patterns of the earth, um, specifically in animals, but it can be applied to anything really, weather patterns, um, you can like, um, one of my friends is a geologist, and if you go on a drive with him, he will landscape track with you and basically tell you that, that, that all of these mountains and mounds and valleys are all historical tracks, right? A track or is glaciers, kind of right? It's like you could, you could track uh, a glacier that's, you know, tens of thousands year old. Yeah. It's just like, this is where the glacier went or something yeah, like that. This is where it melted. This is where the volcano erupted. Yeah. This is where the earthquake happened. Um, that's so, so cool. So one of the ways that we apply this skill is with animals and and if I want to really work on my tracking ability, I'll go to like a sandy beach or a snowy field and I'll spend some time specifically narrowed in and working on the skill of, of track identification. Who, what, where, when, why was this animal here? How are they moving? All of those types of things. And then when I go back to my sit spot, I might notice tracks. And maybe I can't identify them, but I'm sitting at my sit spot. I notice some tracks. And then one day I see the animal come through or the wind or the grass, um, you know, the mechanism of action that makes that track. So then I'm at my sit spot. I get to see this tracking skill that I've been working on, right? They're now interaffording and interpenetrating each other. Or maybe I go and I do a bird sit with a group of people where we sit around a pond and we interpret the events and the communications of the birds. And we find that, you know, these birds are alarming because a sharp shinned hawk is moving around the pond and snatched up a little junco and then everybody got quiet. Then I find myself in my sit spot and I hear some of those similar sounds and I ask those questions like what the what might be the what the birds might be up to. And then I see a sharp shin hawk fly by and chase a varied thrush um, into the bush. Mm. And then I get to, or I come upon a bird kill, which is a track, right? And now I'm, mm-hmm. I'm doing these things both individually, and then they all come together at my sit spot in a way that allows me to see the greater ecology. And then that piece about belonging is you will find that when you go to your sit spot or when you go tracking, you are impacting the world, mm-hmm. right? You Maybe you get good mm-hmm. enough and you find that that coyote went from a walk to a trot to a run because you were there, mm-hmm. right? And, you right. pushed that coyote and that coyote pushed that bird. And now you start to see that you're impacting in the world because you're a participant in the world, oh. in the story, right? And as oh. you start to connect that, you might want to shift how you're impacting it. You might want to have a positive impact and that can, um, especially in foraging. Now when I'm foraging plants, Maybe I come back and like that plant is dead. And I'm like, man, like I might want to be more mindful of my foraging. Mm -hmm. And then you learn that you can forage in a way that actually creates 
more abundance for you and all of the wildlife around you. Now you're having this positive impact and now you more feel like you belong as a participant in the unfolding of the story, right? And if you're in a story, if you're a character in a story, you have meaning, right? A, a story inherently has meaning. And so now there starts to be this reciprocal relationship, this participatory experience where you're gaining resource, you're having positive impact, you're recognizing your role in the story, and then you're creating more meaningful experiences, right? Like, yeah. Um, my friends and I, we were just out tracking in Canada. We got this like fresh snow and we're like, boom, we're going to go out tracking. And we like trailed a bobcat. And then eventually we trailed these coyotes and we were like trailing them, running after them. And then we, we slowly got, as, as we felt like we were getting closer, we got quieter and we moved slowly and then eventually we got to a point in which the coyotes like revealed themselves and we got to see them in their baseline. They were not, you know, running away from us. They didn't even, they didn't really know where we were um, or that we were observing them. And we got this like really cool experience. And then we had lunch and on our way back from lunch, the coyotes had circled up and then they came and smelled our tracks and then they went way up hmm. this hill and across this ridge and took a very <laughs> circuitous route. And then it, it got to, it added to the story. Not only were we following these coyotes, then we got to see these coyotes. Then these coyotes saw us and they saw our track and then they changed their way. And that story, like that experience with those people was deeply meaningful and connective to me, my friends, and the world around me and it was free um and it was and it, i got all the exercise i climbed up and down hills i got all the good sunlight i got all this fresh air so like in that experience i was cultivating meaningful relationships with my friends myself and the greater world around me and that's really what i believe is like at the top of that ecology of practice that's what it's offering yeah no i i love it and i love the focus on on agency and how it um, amplifies it because i think that like i said if we are indeed domesticated animals which i think we are 100 percent are <laughs> like growing up in a society of abundance where we don't have to really worry for food and we just rely on whatever supply chains we don't know how they work but it just gets there the food and in western countries you know you're not going to go hungry even if you're unemployed or whatever um and this is actually what gets um lost i think is this sense of agency of for a lot of people um you're not going to be very ambitious because it kind of works out in the end but Actually, in order to to feel fulfilled and to feel good, I think we have to be creative. We have to be having an impact and a positive impact at that on the lives of other people, on the lives of animals. And it's just understanding that, you know, for the little plot of land that you might have around your house, you can literally be as powerful 
as a god for this place, you know, putting things there, making sure that they're in place, that whatever pests you don't want, don't get in or, or find a solution, work with that rather and find a way to, um, to work things out. And I really like the, the focus on that. And another thing that I would highlight is, um, you mentioned kind of sitting meditation before, and that's really interesting because I think meditation is, is very important, but for some reason, and I've been trying to think about why that is a lot of the tradition of meditation puts you in this sitting position. And it's really quite interesting because for me, I kind of just by chance stumbled on this thing. But at some point I realized that you know, the best meditation I can do is actually go in nature and observe these uh, processes happening. Because if you've been paying close attention to nature and concentrated attention, after half an hour, you're going to be like, oh, where was I, you know, this self in, in the story? And you're going to be like, oh, it's, I was definitely an agent. I was definitely a conscious being, but I wasn't an object of thought in the sense that I had to worry about my own um, integrity, like physical integrity or mental integrity, right? And I, I wasn't in a space where I had to worry about myself. Am I, am I doing well? Am I okay? Or all of that. I was just more, um, I was diluted in some way. And part of me kind of was flowing out of myself and into the world. And it's a more distributed way of being a self. And it just feels wonderful. And in a sense, I have to wonder why so much of so many meditation practices are done sitting in one place. Why not just observe nature? To me, this is the greatest meditation practice. And honestly, it's not as boring. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about it? Yeah. I've been asking the same question. Um, and yeah, through this book I'm reading uh, by Tom Brown, uh, basically their idea, and th and I'm going to kind of conflate some of those teachings with uh, John Verveke's perspective, but um, in the book, their idea of like a sitting meditation is actually like the lowest level, right? Hmm. You're in a comfortable, warm, safe place. Your eyes are closed. You're cultivating this skill, but ultimately you want to move that into a walking meditation, right? Mm. Um, but I think there's a little a nuance that I like that John proposes is meditation is about understanding yourself and your mind and training your focus and your attention. And then a contemplative practice is more about the external. Can I have that wide angled vision and that broad focus that I want in meditation and can I recognize events in nature without putting too much energy into them? So as I'm in that space that you just spoke to, right? Like think about it. Like if you've been living in a deeply connected relationship in which all of your resources are dependent on the information that you're taking in, you're in this like broad mind, not thinking space where you're 
paying attention to those smells on the wind, the taste on the moisture, the moisture in the air, the bird sound in the distance, and then you're scanning and trying to bring in, you know, highly salient things that when you become focused, you're missing out on all of this information. So if you can soften the focus and go into what people would call that meditative state, we're actually allowing more information to come in. And then like, like if I hear a bird alarm and I, and I immediately jump to a conclusion like, oh my God, like there's a bear or a coyote or a pack of wolves coming at me. I might not have realized that if I can stay in that, that actually there's only one bird alarm and all of the other birds are still singing. So actually that information that tells me that there's an isolated incident that might just be like male to male aggression, that the rest of the forest hmm. is in baseline and there's only this bird might be responding to me. So if I can stay in that, for as long as possible, I get as much data coming in and now I'm making better decisions, right? And so I think that yeah. is like, I agree. Like, I think, I think sitting meditation is good. I think it, there's obviously lots of benefits to it. But again, I think, I think there are higher levels of attunement that we can achieve um, if we transfer that skill into other arenas. Yeah, yeah, because I think uh, one important thing which is transferable from, you know, being in nature and listening to birds, like always oh, think, oh, it's just birds, but how many of us are good listeners when it comes to humans? You know, with we, we each have our own voice kind of driving us crazy in our own head and eventually i think we should evolve to occupy a space as uh, still distinct selves maybe but meeting the world halfway and definitely other people meeting them halfway so uh, more and more i find myself talking with people and feeling at least metaphorically or i don't know how to describe it exactly but I'm going halfway and I'm meeting you halfway and there's something there that's not really either of us. It's something that's, that has um, some sort of autonomy from me and it feels good because I can um, nourish that thing, that relationship and that relationship, um, again, we're talking about circles, right? And then an ecosystem that feeds back into the more isolated self once we're done talking. And then this isolated self is now feeling a lot better because it's, it's just been engaged in this activity, which we evolved to do and be nourished by, which is, um, relate with other people. Right. And so. I think that's that's a, a really nice insight that I came across at some point, which is for some strange, funny, weird reason, really worrying about how well you're doing 
is actually not what's going to cause that. Rather, you want to um, not worry per se, but, you know, just put the effort into doing all these things that feed back, right? So actually the focus should be not on the whole, but on many little parts that that feed back, which I think is uh, not naturally how we we grow up, at least in the West, I think. I think that part of our neuroses and um, kind of mental health problems have to do with the fact that we are constantly, the self is so present and we're worried about like, is it doing well? Is it not doing well? And it's to our detriment because then we actually neglect the outside things, which mm -hmm. would feedback and make us feel inherently uh, well, you know? Yeah. I really like that uh, feeding relationships um, in a way that's reciprocal, right? Like, I don't necessarily feed them so that you feed me, but I recognize that when I feed them, it feeds me. And I think mm -hmm. that connects back to this idea of, of belonging Absolutely. and the level of, of disconnect that we are at is like, you are literally made up of the food and the water and the air that you breathe, right? Like that's just a fact. And we are now living in a world where we don't get to feed back into those systems, right? Like most people have no idea where their water comes from. So they're not unable to care for it. They're unable to, to give back. Most people don't know where their food comes from, right? And we are also, we don't even get buried in a way when we pass on from this world that we're even able to give the nutrients that we've extracted back. And so there's all these levels hmm. of, of disconnect. And then, right, like a lot of our family can be in different parts of the world. And then more so for me, like my friends are further and further apart. And, and so I don't get that like, regular, reliable feedback um, loop that makes me feel like I belong. Like I, I know when I, it's like, it's like, it's hard to know when you belong, but you definitely know when you don't belong. Yeah. Right. And I, and I yeah. almost want to like reverse those roles or just bring into more consciousness. Like, Oh wow. Like, I feel this sense of belonging with these people, with this place. Um, you know, when somebody like grows food and cooks it and feeds it to you and you sit down and you have that meal, those are all layers of story and belonging that you feel more connected to. Um, and yeah, we're just, we're so fragmented Right. It's like, like you have an accent. If you come to the United States, people will, you know, in a sense, you, there'll be a slight push of not belonging. Right. <laughs> but when you're in Israel. And uh, you're, yeah. Even, even in, in one, in one, in one extreme uh, case, people asked me if I knew what pickles were made of. 
And I was like, yes, I, I just made some pickles like the month before. It's like, just because I have an accent doesn't mean I'm stupid. Thank you. <laughs> right. And, and, but in a world that we evolved into your, your language, your accent, your clothing, the color of your clothing, right? Your food, your water, all of those things were indicative of that place, right? And as yeah. we spread out and through trade and globalization, right? Like most people are eating a diet that none of the food is native to the land they live in. And even worse, none of the food is grown within like 500 miles of where they live. So now there, there's these two levels of disconnection from their food source, right? Their clothing can also, you know, and like you could be eating avocados from Guatemala and shrimp from Indonesia and cod from the Atlantic. And now you're like, you're made up of all these places that are not where your body is. Right. And, and I think there's something to that that I can't quite put my finger on. But I know when I was living on a land and I was drinking water from a spring from that land and I was foraging food from that land, I started to smell like that place in a way that was very attractive to people. They're like... They're like, your smell is amazing. And, and now I'm living a little bit more of a domesticated existence. And like my partner has reflected to me that my smell has changed. Right. And I'm, I'm not uh -oh. drinking water of a place and I'm eating less food of a place. Um, and so there's that fragmentation in all of these, ba in all of these ways that we meet our basic needs. And, and I think that's part of like the sit spot. It kind of at least like brings us into relationship, at least in a, in a, like an effective way, like a, a way of impact. And then, like you said, if we can, you know, eat a berry, you know, from a, plant that's in our garden or, you know, that grows in a park nearby or make a tea or, you know, just otherwise be in this relationship, every little thread of that participatory experience, right? Like when you learn a language, you feel like if I learn Spanish and go to Mexico, I feel a little bit more like I belong. If I don't speak the language, oh, yeah. I feel like I don't belong. And I'm like, ah. So there's all these ways that we're disconnected, um, but all of this, by bringing it back, um, we can start to reweave that web um, in a way that, yeah, like makes us happier, healthier, and is more regenerative for the earth ultimately. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's also something that's really important for belonging um so for a long while i've been walking with this idea in my mind about um feeling at home in the world because there's something so interesting about the concept of home you know it's your 
cozy place for a lot of us. It's like sitting by the fireside. Well, not in Israel, but <laughs> I know that I've heard that in colder countries, you know, it's sitting by the, um, by the fire on this, um, like recliner chair and whatever. And it's, it's the hearth, it's the warmth and there's, there's something so cozy and we just know this feeling and English kind of reflects it perfectly with the fact that you have a word home, which is not the same as the word house. And mm. I, I recognize that for me, the more I understand about uh, uh, things around me in the world, this is actually what brings the sensation of belonging, the familiarity. It starts with understanding. It starts with not being um, in a mode of like, hey, what the hell is going on? It's like, this is scary. I don't know what's happening and so on. Because it turns out, you know, if, if you release a person who's just been uh, working in IT for a long while and then just one day is set out in the wild, in the dark forest and no skills, you know, you don't know how to listen to birds yet. You don't know how to track. This is going to be legitimately scary, especially if it is an area where you know there are big predators, right? And it it's probably the case that after two years, even if there are big predators, you're going to be aware of how to spot them from even a mile away if you're listening to birds or mm. track them, you know, if you found scats or anything like that. And even if you come... Um, if you come in contact with them, well, maybe you've learned how to climb trees by now, so it's not a huge problem, you know? Maybe you know you should play dead, whatever. But all this understanding, this knowledge, is going to bring you into a feeling of familiarity, which is going to allow you to uh, let your guard down, at least to a healthy extent, because you're not going to be neurotic about what the future may bring. And that feels like... Uh, belonging, especially when you're bringing other people into the picture and being able to converse with them and understand the minds of the people who are around you. You're not going to find them doing something that's unexpected. You're going to nourish your relationships with them. And this is going to, um, again, go out of you into that and then feedback. So I, I really uh, love the theme of belonging. That's kind of been, um, been the theme of this conversation. And um, yeah, I was really happy when you, when you uh, told me that this is what's probably going to come up. So thanks a lot for that. Um, yeah. Do you have like uh, maybe a concluding uh, thought on, on all of this? Yeah, one thing I wanted to mention that came up before as you were talking about domestication, there's this really um, interesting quote that is like, we are cactuses in the rainforest. <laughs> and right, in the sense that we're not designed for the current environment and this overabundance of water is actually like unhealthy um, or is detrimented to the strategies that we have cultivated for a very long time. And, and I, and again, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. Like I love my Bluetooth speaker, yeah. like love, love my fridge. A, <laughs> you know, smoking ducks. 
on the smoker. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of things that I love about modernity. And I think we can, as a collective, start to shift this perspective and you see it in the realm of beneficial stressors, right? That we, that everybody knows that working out is, is really good for you. We know that intermittent fasting or spending periods of time not eating is really good for you, right? And we know that going to bed when it's dark out and getting up when it's light out has, has a lot of benefits. And so we can look back through the evolutionary lens and we can find kind of a roadmap of of things that we want to incorporate in our lives and we can use the modern technology to better utilize uh, or to make those things easier and more accessible. Like, like I'm house sitting in this like ridiculous house right now. And like, there are so many conveniences that are actually detrimental to the health mm -hmm. and are very, um, make living a sedentary lifestyle like very easy. And yeah. So, in conclude, yes. Yeah, so, one concluding thought is I would love to see us move towards a prioriz prioritization of bridging these worlds of, of like ancient wisdom and modern technology in a way that is both quantifiable that we can help convince more people of these benefits, um, but that we can also give more people the experience so that they know in their body how good they feel after doing these things. And that we do have these really lovely, safe, warm homes full of food that we get to come back to. So why not expend extra energy in a way that we can help our neighbor, we can help our animal ecosystems, and we can help ourselves um, yeah, feel better, feel more connected, and utilize all of these resources in a direction that is going to allow us to better live in perpetuity. Because um, right now we're very much going in the opposite direction. Um, and I think that starts yeah. by yeah, yeah. going outside <laughs> and, and noticing. Yeah, I, I love the image of a, of, <laughs> I love the image of a cactus in a rainforest because I think uh, root rot should be a real psychological evaluation. It's like you go to the psychiatrist and it's like, it's root rot, man. Like, go find your sit spot, and we'll set you on a path of healing. Um, yeah, Kyle, this has been wonderful as I expected it to be and maybe even uh, surpassed that. So thanks a lot. Um, if people want to hear more from you or is there anything that they could search for online? Yeah, totally. So uh, social media is the easiest way if you want to get in contact with me. Um, I'm active on there sharing content. Um, I'm open. Yeah, I would love to be in dialogue with more people. Um, so feel free to reach out. My email is kyle at trottingsparrow.com. My Instagram is at trottingsparrow. And a lot of 
the work that I do is I facilitate transformative experiences in nature that are all based around movement, mindfulness, nature connection, and community building practices. And I do that work with a company called Evolve Move Play. And we have a whole slew of seminars that will be happening starting in May. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, you can find us at evolvemoveplay.com. And um, yeah, we'll be out there. Awesome. Well, again, this has been great. And thanks so much for making the time. Um, yeah, and I can't wait for us to uh, get together at some point and track and sit and listen to birds. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate your elucidating questions and, yeah, the drawing out of, yeah, ideas that I, I think about, but I don't often articulate. Um, so, yeah, I'm taking a, a lot away from this conversation. And, yeah, I'm definitely – Israel's on the list. You made it so salient with your multi-colliding ecosystems. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> anytime, man. Anytime, and see you here. <laughs>